You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Bernie Madoff, a thief who ruined tens of thousands of lives. Today we find out how the U.S. Marshals took everything he had, from the boats down to his underwear and dirty socks, and how the victims got some of that money back. Bernie Madoff had it all, and the U.S. Marshals Service took it all away. Welcome to Chasing Evil. I'm Chris Gotzik, and today we're talking about a fantastic program that enabled the Marshals to right some wrongs and dismantle the Madoff financial empire. Joining us today is Jenny Crane, Assistant Chief Asset Forfeiture Division, Personal Property. Otherwise, she kind of refers to herself as a used car saleswoman. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Roland Yabaldo, who is Senior Inspector of the Organized Crime and Drug Enforcement Task Force, and Bob Sheen and Jason Zipnuski of Gaston and Sheehan, the auctioners located in beautiful Pflugerville, Texas. And in case you're wondering, yeah, it's just a stone's throw from Frame Switch, Texas. So we're going to just start off talking about this program that is literally coming into uh, rights and wrongs here. Jenny, that's you. I'm sorry. What? <laughs> God. My did did you has, just look my, at your phone? My boss has forgotten what I'm doing. Okay. Right now, well, the so one thing that, that you me. cannot do while on a podcast. Yeah, I know. I'm learning. I'm sorry. Is texting. Okay. <laughs> I'm not texting. So uh, prior to 1984, if you were a bad guy and you went to jail for mm -hmm. a crime, say uh, racketeering or you're a money laundering or you're dealing drugs, you go to jail, you do your time, you come right out and you go and walk into your penthouse or your luxury apartment, you're driving your Mercedes, all your cash is still in the bank. So was there any financial disincentive other than going to jail? You're a bad guy. It's kind of like what you're going to do eventually in the course of your bad guy career. Right. So how do we change that? So the in 1984, there was something called the Comprehensive Crime Control Act, and it said if you have ill-gotten gains as a result of your illegal activities – the government can seek forfeiture, meaning take those mm -hmm. items, and then we can sell those items. And then what do we do with those items once we sell them? We can help reimburse victims. Mm -hmm. So if there's a claim, we can help make them whole. Right. Uh, so moving from 1984, kind of a new law was put into place, and forfeiture was made part of the, the justice vernacular. And it actually helped to take away these goodies that mm -hmm. all the drug dealers and all the money launderers mm -hmm. were having. Um, so move forward into that. So if you are a kingpin and DEA is looking for you mm -hmm. and you've bought a fleet of high-end cars with the money you've made selling the drugs, then we're going to take the cars. So that's bought with the proceeds of, the, of, your, Ill, of, your, of your, your crime. Mm -hmm. um, or if you're driving those cars to facilitate selling all the drugs, 
we're taking those cars as well. Right. So it's two different ways. Either bought by proceeds or it facilitated the crime. Okay. So you move forward into what we have now. So the Department of Justice has many agencies that take play, take part of this. FBI, DEA, ATF, and a multitude of other agencies that have forfeitable offenses, um, which identify all of these different things that if you use your money and you purchase these things, uh, a car, a house, you have um, annuity, stocks, bonds, you have llamas, you have horses. Um, we would have the ability to seize, uh-huh. which is to hold on to until the pendency of a court case. And then once it's forfeited, all title rights and interests vest the United States government, and then we can sell them. Along comes the whale of uh, asset forfeiture, mm-hmm. Bernie Madoff. Roland's going to bring us up to speed on how we got to where we are. If you don't know who Madoff is, ask yourself... Which Bernard Madoff did you want to know, or who do you, which one did you want to know about? The one before December 11th, 2008, or the one after December 11th, 2008? His investors, his friends, his family, prior to December 11th, 2008, will tell you that he was a great man. He was the bull on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. I mean, he set the tone for, for what Wall Street evolved into after, um, obviously, a crash. You know, And then it moved into... Um, what are we going to do in the 80s? What are we going to do in the 90s? How are we going to make money? And then you have you have this Bernie Madoff who comes along and he revolutionizes the way that stocks and bonds and annuities traded. He revolutionizes the way that um, that NASDAQ is going to handle and value securities. Uh, he set the bar on how to make money. Mm-hmm. And he obviously um, was duping a bunch of people in the way. He was, he was a master salesman. Right. He showed... I'm going to make you a bunch of money. Right. And, and people in, were confident in that. And in the process, he put together the greatest Ponzi scheme in the history of the United States. Absolutely. So on December 11th, 2008, he was arrested by the FBI. He was known as the most hated man in New York. Victims will call him a beast, a monster. Other agencies will call him the orchestrator of the biggest Ponzi scheme in our nation's history, mm-hmm. in the world. Mm-hmm. This was a $65 billion scheme to take money from trusting investors. It was uh, a, and these investors weren't just like big dollar money people. These were your grandma and your granddad who had retired to Florida. Uh, there were people saving up for kids' college funds. There were pension funds that were affected, charities, synagogues, a Holocaust survivor, mm-hmm. and Nobel Prize winner aristocrats, philanthropists. And who were trusting this man with their hard-earned savings Mm -hmm. with the promise that they were going to be making money and they were going to be comfortable throughout their golden years. And he put together this Ponzi scheme and, you know, I know people who kind of looked at it who were in the financial sector and passed on it because it just seemed too good to be true. They didn't trust it and if they couldn't figure it out... They were not going to invest in it. But a lot of people said, well, uh, that pension fund is in it. They probably have done the due diligence so we can get into it. We get to the point where he is convicted. He's going to do, is it 150 years? Yes. So he was uh, convicted for 11 accounts of securities fraud, wire fraud, mail fraud, uh, perjury, false statements, and uh, stealing from retirement and pension funds, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to name a few. Right. The conviction goes through. So technically, there wasn't a conviction at this point. Okay. This is not your typical case. 
Uh, typically, there is uh, pre-investigations. There is fact-gathering. There is an indictment. There is an arrest. Right. Uh, this was totally different. In December, the case was born. He basically came forward and said, the jig is up, and I've been doing this for a long time. And, oh, by the way, I've been doing it by myself. I think what was happening is he was realizing he wasn't getting his reserve, his returns, and he couldn't continue to pay out. Right. He was running out of money. Right, right. So what is he going to do? And mind you, he's what, 78, yeah. 79 at this point? Yeah. He's tapped out all his resources. So right. what's he going to do? And I think at some point, and I don't know, in yeah. the inner workings of his mind, at what point he, he decided he needed to come clean. But he said, I've done this. I've been doing it for years. And nobody else has been helping me. Here's the case. Immediately, the marshal service is thrust into the roles of what our duties are, which was obviously execute the order of the court. Okay. A court document called a preliminary order of forfeiture was generated. Okay. That allows the United States Marshal Service to serve in its custodial role. Okay. That's where we step in and start grabbing the assets. Okay. We were kind of handed this very hot potato and told, handle it. Okay. There's assets out there. They need to be seized. We need to start to make this right. And is it typical that he's going to identify assets that he wants you to know about? And but that's in, yeah, that's interesting you mentioned that because the government will, or Bernard Madoff and his lawyer at the time will, will say that the crimes began in the early to mid-90s. Right. The government will assert that the criminal activity began as early as the 80s. And some will say as early as the 70s, if not the 60s, when... BLMIS, Bernard L. Madoff Investment Securities, began. Mm -hmm. Why is the timeline important? Because it's the timeline that dictates when the criminal activity began and when those illicit gains or the ill-gotten gains right. were, 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 right. were gained. And you got to yeah. figure out what, what you can take and what you can't. And it's very important to do that financial tracing. Um, that's, that's, that's the bread and butter of identifying what is a, what's a bad person bought with right. someone else's money. Right. And that's exactly what happened in this case. What did Bernie and Ruth acquire? And was it rightfully theirs to buy or was it bought by your grandma's money? Right. So uh, fast forwarding to the case, we know that most of the assets, almost all of the assets, save for a few million dollars, were then targeted for forfeiture okay. to include homes, cars, personal property effects. Right. So you fast forward to December. And we all kind of have to circle our wagons and say, how are we going to handle this beast of a case? And oh, by the way, there is so much national and international exposure. Not only do we have a beautiful golden opportunity to show how, import how important forfeiture is. Right. But we need to do it right and we need to do it better than right. Mm -hmm. Because there are victims, there are people that are taking their lives because of the money that he stole from them. Mm -hmm. So it was very important to us mm -hmm. to make sure that we did this with as much precision as possible. Right. Because this was such a beast, you had to put a plan together. You, did you need additional personnel that you don't normally need? How big was this? The Madoff case in total was the biggest case we've ever handled in forfeiture. Uh, sheer volume of assets and dollar value of those assets Bar none, biggest case we've ever handled. You arrive for the first time at 64th Street. Ruth is there. She hasn't vacated the property yet. Ruth answers the door. And you say what to her? I follow in behind United States Deputy Marshals and FBI agents. Uh-huh. I represent the asset forfeiture piece of the case. I am an administrative employee. 
who handles a national program to sell cars, jewelry, arts, antiques, collectibles, seized all over the country. Okay. So this ends up in my shop. Right. From my observations, Ruth knew we, at some point the government was going to come knocking, but I don't know if she ever really believed they were. Right. Uh, my observations were, you know, she was an older woman, um, really small, frail-looking woman. Right. Um, however, when she started talking, she was not frail, and she did not represent herself in any meek manner. It was striking to me because she was by herself except for a super. She called the super when we got there and asked the super to come up and be with her. Uh, as we ended up learning later on, he was very helpful to them. He would change their toilet seats. He would do small errands for them. He would drive her places. Yeah, you would think there would be a large staff. There was no staff. Right. No staff at all. And I don't know if that was probably my first indicator to something's weird here. And the more time that I spent in the brownstone, the more it became apparent that I was kind of walking back in time. Yes, it was a multi-million dollar brown, brownstone in Manhattan. Right. But there was nothing new. There was nothing. I don't think I saw anything that had been purchased within three or four years in that house. Mm-hmm. Or more. Or more. Yeah. It was almost hermetically sealed. It was right. like they, were, they stopped at a certain point and didn't buy anything. Right. Uh, um, and at this point, are you letting Ruth stay or are you telling Ruth to, you know, don't let the door hit in the way out? Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Ruth was allowed to stay, I believe, for a very small amount of time Uh until she could make other arrangements. I think at that point, she was going to live with a sister in Florida. There was speculation that she was going to leave and leave the state. We ended up going back very shortly thereafter, maybe a week and a half to two weeks later, because we had gathered all of our people. Right. We had our inventory team standing How by. How big was your inventory team? I think we probably had 25 to 30 people wow. that went into the brownstone. Uh, we had already done some planning as to... How are we going to do this? Uh, we had to take pictures of the real property or take pictures of the rooms. Uh, and then we had to physically go in and open the cabinet doors, open the closets, look in the jewelry boxes. And it was a painstaking, meticulous process. Right. Because every everything that Madoff has, and we'll get to the boys down in Texas, may have some value. I was speculating at that point. I okay. was hoping that anything that they may have touched would have some type of numismatic value, which numismatic value is a fancy term for having. It's an intrinsic value. Someone's going to pay for it. Yeah. Um, so if we hit the market the right way, and if we had carried on to this fever that the media had started that we would be able to say, do you want a piece of history? Good, right. bad, or not, right. this and is you're, a piece and of your financial role, history. You're not, you're not a, a deputy U.S. Marshal. I am not a gun toter. You're I am, a saleswoman extraordinaire. Yes, I, 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 I appreciate all of these personal property assets for the value that they are worth. I 
understand that there is a market for absolutely right. everything. We used to say uh, in the agent business, when someone gave you a script, whether you liked it or not, don't smell it, sell it. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You, you, you give me something and I'm going to sell it. Okay. So how did you get Ruth out? And you took something off Ruth, right? So there were legalities of uh, which I would have to yield to Roland um, about Ruth's actual vacating the property. She was with us for the initial inventory of the uh -huh. property. In e She was able to identify some things that she wanted to take. Okay. Imagine, you know, Ruth had lived in that house for a long time. It was right. her stuff in right. her mind. Right. She and Bernie owned that stuff. Right. And she felt as though she had a claim to that stuff. Then we roll in with a court order saying, you really don't have a claim to that stuff. Right. So we were put in the position. I was put in the position to make sure that I followed this order to the extent of what was written. So we allowed Ruth to gather her personal effects, to pack a couple bags, and then make her way on out. Right. So that was... Not actually as easy as it sounds. Right. Ruth wanted to take a few things, and we had to step in and say, I don't think that's the things that you should be taking. Of course, I, you know, I let her take her clothes, and so she would have a wardrobe, but right. she certainly wasn't taking. What did she try to take that you were like, mm. The most notable item was, you know, it's, it's July, and she was going to Florida, and she wanted to take her mint coat. Well, as, as you do. No need to take a mint coat. <laughs> Uh, obviously there's a lot of value in a mint coat. Right. Um, everything that we look at has a value that could be sold to make a victim reparation. Right. So you said no, no mink. You're not taking the mink. No mink. You uh, can take a regular coat. Right. You can have something in your closet here. Mind you, there was probably 20 other coats to choose from. You right. did not need the mink. Right. We were very particular to make sure that we took anything of value. The only personal jewelry item that I allowed her to keep was her uh, wedding band. Right. She had a bangle on her wrist. She wanted to take it. And I said, nope, you got to give us the bangle. We ended up. Uh, but with you, you had the power to take her wedding ring. I did have the power to take her wedding ring, and I felt as though uh, at that point, you know, they're still married. She's still going to see him at MCC. Right. We stumbled upon notes where there was, uh, as a couple, they had a budget, and they had a budget that they followed after he went to jail, and it had her, what she could spend on cosmetics, what she could spend on transportation. I really, at that point, was thinking... It was not, it's not my role to say whether or not she was involved or she was complicit or she right. was aware. It wasn't my role to right. do that. Right. Um, but I was, I was struck at certain times by, she had met him when she was 14 years old. Right. I think she too believed in some of what he was selling. Right. And I thought that if she's going to take these very small personal effects and a suitcase or two of clothes and her wedding band, that right. was fair to her. Uh-huh. Okay. And she left. She did leave. And now you have 30 agents in the apartment opening every cabinet, every drawer, every everything, and literally cataloging the most minute, seemingly insignificant item. Yes. So to give you kind of a, a feeling of what it was like when you walked into that apartment, this is a two-story brownstone most of the apartments in that brownstone are only one floor. Mm -hmm. So they had 11A and 11B, I think. Yeah, and as you walk in to the right of the doorman, you had an elevator 
that only went to the penthouse. Only went to the penthouse. Absolutely. Uh-huh. They had their own private entrance. Okay. So you walk in and you're on the top floor. The top floor had, if you look to the right, it had a very grand stateroom. And there was a Steinway piano. Uh, There was kind of some furniture that, I don't want to say it's luxurious, but there was nice furniture. Nice books on the shelves. It kind of gave a, oh, this is a stately grandparents' home. Right. So the kitchen and the dining room were on that floor. Once you descended down what seemed to be kind of a palatial staircase, you were downstairs, what I would consider their private living area. So you had Bernie's bedroom, you had Bernie's closets, you had Ruth's closet, and then there was a study. And you walked in the study, and it was just like you would think on the movies. It's this beautiful mahogany shelves. Everything is in green and leather, and it's plush. It's a little bit more plush than the rest of the the contents of the home. Um, And this is, I assume, Bernie's private thinking space. But it was more of Bernie's tribute to Bernie. Uh, (laughs) There was uh, not only the reminders of what he believed himself to be, in my opinion, which was the bull on the market, because... There was the bull stool. There was bull motif everywhere. There was little figurines. But if you were to take the time to kind of look at the shelves, there was Tips on Investing by Bernie Madoff. There was his NASDAQ certificates. Uh, It was kind of a – it was interesting considering what we believe to happen in that room, and I'll kick that over to Roland. But if you were to to look in – if you were just to be a silent little person, if you were to be a silent person in in that room and – it's kind of like, well, is this where he did his thinking? Is this where he did his scheming? And it was almost a little personal trophy room to Bernie. Yeah, it was. And based on reports, it was where he confessed to his sons about the crime that he's been committing for over 20 years. So I think uh, looking back now, was that uh, did those walls contain a lot of secrets? And did the contents within that room kind of give us a look into his life? Absolutely. Right. So we would take pictures of every single room and then we had teams and the teams would identify the assets by category. If there's books, if there's art, if there's jewelry. Uh, I had our contractor for the Marshall Service, Gaston and Sheehan, were assisting us with the inventory. Right. uh, And they would immediately allow us to identify an asset and then put a baseline value to it. Right. And you had, I'm sure with with Madoff, probably every auction house in existence wanting your attention. So From Christie's to Sotheby's. I think it's important to understand that we do this every day, day in and day out, regardless if there's a Bernie Madoff or not. We had someone in place that could do the job for us and could do the job for us at a fair price. When you go to some of the other auction houses, you're paying a lot more money. Okay. And I was accountable for every dollar that we were spending because eventually it was going to go back to the victims. Right. So okay, there was there was a little bit of oh you're going to use some locals from Texas they they proved themselves to be experts in this uh-huh. and if one were to look at the outcome of these auctions cumulatively right. we hit it out of the park so we did 64th Street the Brownstone two weeks later we did uh, 216 Old Montauk Highway and then okay. rolling into the fall we did uh, the house in Florida you're an auctioneer. You walk into a house, what do you see? You're looking for value, clearly. You're looking, ooh, that'll go, that won't go. It sounds like they've been in this 
uh, apartment for decades and decades and decades, which means you accumulate more and more crap. My view when we walked in the door that morning was summed up exactly the way that Jenny phrased it. Well, this is kind of a nice house, but it didn't take my breath away. I think we were all struck with, where's the stuff? Right, right. Where is everything? Where'd they put their money? How much money had you seized in the bank accounts? We we hadn't identified much at this at this, this point. Oh, okay. I thought I because remember this is pretty much what this is what Bernie's been telling us. Right, 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 right. Millions of dollars restrained in bank accounts. Okay, and there was ownership interests held in Ruth or Bernie's names that were identified at uh-huh. that point did not have values. Uh-huh. They had ownership in several several entities. Right, and those entities hadn't hadn't been valued yet. Correct. Okay. Sterling Equity Partners, Hoboken been, Radiology. You ever been to P.J. Clark's? Yes. Who would have known he had some uh, investments in P.J. Clark's? Mm-hmm. Okay. I believe fat heads. You, any, any of you have kids with the big sports figures on the, uh, on the wall, the stickies? I believe that was also a company involved in the Madoff investments. Uh-huh, uh-huh. They, had, they had put their money in quite a few places. There were some safe deposit boxes. There was Comad Securities. There was... Uh, Madoff had a bunch of like Bank Madoff, uh, dual. Uh, I'm sorry, Bank Madoff, Madoff Libre LLC. There was quite a few little LLCs that were sitting around there. Plus, plus there was some promissory notes that were floating around that needed to be liquidated. Um, you know, some in excess of almost ten million dollars. Right. So there was quite a bit of money out there that we were identifying and seizing. Right. Okay. And Bob and Jason, when you when you walked in and and we're starting with the uh, with the uh, house on 64th Street. You guys came up with a uh, kind of a unique plan. First thing was this was a series of auctions. In the first sale, you know, we didn't know we didn't know the fire this was going to really catch. So I think it's really important for to for people listening to this to realize what this experience was like. So for us to walk into Bernie Madoff's closet, which was a room that was probably. 10 by 7, maybe, full of loose side drawers. On one side was that closet. On the other side of the hallway was a a cedar-lined shoe closet. And I remember distinctly being in there and looking at the shoe boxes, and there was several pairs of shoes, all within the original maker box, all with cedar inserts, all the same size, all monogrammed, in just every color possible. There were over 200 pairs of shoes, and they were all the same brand. It was a Belgian shoe. There was so and, much and conspicuous consumption. On the wall or on the shelf, yeah. he actually had a schematic that told <laughs> what color shoe was on what shelf. Yes, yes. And and he had when he wore them. Oh. What days really? he was wearing them. And if I remember correctly, in the bottom of that closet, there was a bunch of news articles of him post-December that were in a box sitting next to the shoes. Right. And didn't he replicate his shoes? So there was the house, the Brownstone in New York. Right. There was the the Ocean Country Estate in Montauk. Yeah. And then there was your... Florida beach estate right in each of the three homes were very similar items all the clothing felt and looked the same some of the exact same things in each of the closets they didn't really even need to pack a bag 
they could just show up at each of their houses. So there was a lot of shoes. There, there was a lot of shoes. There was a lot yeah. of socks. There was a lot of underwear. There was just, there was so much, so much unnecessary items. Right. If you had one pair of socks and you had 10 pair of socks, fine. You don't need 100 pair of socks, all right. reminding you of right. your initials. Well, right. the subtle signs agreed. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, do we need to know it's BLM on every shirt? This brings us to, to the auction. And the auction, this was, a, this was a frenzy, right? You were getting calls from international press. If it was, was Manson, if this was John Wayne Gacy, if this was Whitey Bulger, I kind of, I kind of get it in, an, in, a, in a way. I, I didn't understand that Madoff would have this level of interest and craziness attached to him. We were shocked at we the amount shocked. of attention. I mean, uh, what's Al Jazeera want to know about this case? What's BBC want to know about this case? Oh, wow. Poland um, TV. Poland, Israeli TV. Uh, right. a Chinese TV, I believe, as well. Um, there was international press on this case like you wouldn't believe. So the way that we set these up was uh, Roland was the, the point of the spear here. He would make sure that we invited every single news outlet that had any interest in the case. We would provide some documentation ahead of time as to uh, background on the case. And then we said, you will be able to touch feel these assets. You can put your camera. You can ask us questions. These are not roped off items. These are not roped off items. I mean, you want to put a Rolex on your wrist and right. do some shots for it? By all means. Because we knew the power of the press. Right. And we right. thought it was really important for the victims to, 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 to maximize our exposure, to maximize our proceeds, we better sell this like we've sold no other case. We would time these perfectly to coincide with live shots. I remember that. We wanted to go live uh, on CNN. We wanted to go live on Fox. We wanted mm -hmm. to go live on, 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 on local news. Right. We wanted to go live. I okay. think we, we made sure we were there for Dan Rather and his 7 p.m. newscast. That's it was important. Uh, right. I think, the, I think the caption, you know, when the press releases went out before both sales, um, our phones here at the office – Honestly, they did not. I think the press release probably went out on the Friday before the sale or the Monday before the sale. And honestly, our phones did not stop ringing for, you know, from the time from the time we opened till the time we closed. You could pick up the phone, talk to somebody, set the phone down. The phone was ringing. I think if anybody's ever been to downtown New York City and you're going to walk through the streets, you know, there's cars, there's taxis, there's people everywhere. So imagine a sale at the Sheridan, 7th and 53rd Street. And there's cars, there's news vans, there's affiliates standing out doing press on the corner. And you're going to go and you want to see what's inside. And right. inside is a replica for right. a, of Bernie and Madoff's house. So as you're walking into this grand foyer at the Sheridan, there's stanchions put up that direct you where to go. All the way from the street. There were people lined up on the street just to go in and be able to see the assets. Right. So I think we had funneled 4,000 to 5,000 people in through those few days. They may or may not have purchased. However, proof's in the pudding there. We sold everything and we sold everything above value. More than what we thought we would get. Right. And Jason alluded to after the very first lot and the, the gavel rang down on that very first lot. It was clear something was going on here, and we were going to be able to make, make history, really. It was like a forest fire. You know, mm -hmm. it just, once it got started, watch out. And this and kind of a, a funny story on the second sale that we had there at the Sheridan. And we had the big crowd, and at the second sale, uh, I believe that's when Net Geo was there. They were filming 
uh, a documentary, I a documentary yeah. for the marshals. Yeah, and that's right. The hotel had booked our auction for that day in, in a big function room. And next door, unbeknownst to us, they ha- were having a, a certification exam for gynecologists. <laughs> so they're in the next room taking this test, and we're auctioning. And the way we auction, you know, I'm at a thousand. What do you get two? What do you get two? Somebody bids two, and my ringman yells, "Yes!" <laughs> and I guess it was <laughs> throwing the gynecologist off <laughs> course in the next room. And they came in and said, "Do you think you could keep it down just a little bit?" And oh, well, we'll try, but the I don't answer think to that, right. we did not keep it down. <laughs> Yeah. No. Yeah. Yeah. I looked. I looked at the hotel staff, and then I looked over at the deputies, and I was like, "No, I think I'm going to keep doing it the way I'm doing it, and yeah. pay the pay, pay the price later on down the road." So, <laughs> I think I'd like to go into this portion of the podcast. We might call this uh, criminal roadshow because I have hundreds and hundreds of items here. One of the things I think is interesting is that you had a footstool. It says one leather bull footstool. Now we know Madoff was very into bulls. He has a lot of items that are uh, that have bulls on them or are are of bulls. So one leather bull footstool. The tail needs to be reattached. <laughs> Jason, take us inside inside your head. How are you valuing this broken footstool? So you know you 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 have to understand when you when you're appraising things, you're kind of looking at. You're kind of looking at what it is and you and we know that we know the backstory of it you're looking at that for what it is i mean you're, you're going out and you're finding direct estate comparables and you're looking at it and then and then your you know your thought process is you know is the case the nature of the case going to have any impact is there going to be uh somebody that you know um you know uh, an investment person that's going to want to put this in their office and have a story piece or, you know, when, what's it worth to them? You want to sell the assets, but you don't want to give them away. Right. So and, you, and want to, you... you want to make sure that they're fair, they're, that the market demands that it seeks its value. So you're looking at it for what it is. And then, you know, you're looking at the other factors and assigning a value, you know, that, that commiserates with all that. And on, <laughs> and on a lot of these things, are there minimum bids or it's just open bidding? It starts at. They're all have minimum uh, well, bids. Yeah. Okay. They all have minimums, but that really wasn't a consideration here because everything, you know, um, even even things that, you know, like jewelry items that have hard market, you know, right. rock and metal market values were, you know, um, like, you know, roofs, the, the, the 10 and a half carat um, emerald cut diamond ring. I mean, that brought over 500,000 and, and that thing that that's that's re- you're, you're at retail dollars for, right. for that ring. So, I mean, that, that you, it's not an auction consideration value. Right. Well, like, for, the, for the instance, best... this, this footstool, just to go, I mean, because I, I just thought it was interesting that it was a bull foot, footstool and the tail needed to be re- reattached. And right. you guys, ex- you, I guess you opened the bidding at 250 and it went right. for, uh, for 3300 Right. No different than the igloo cooler. <laughs> and, and, and the best thing about selling with the marshals or when we sell for the marshals people realize that the marshals are motivated sellers they don't they don't have an inventory if if you go to some of the art galleries to auctions there there's always somebody owns that painting and they think it's worth this much so they don't want to sell it unless they get that much the marshals don't want inventory they want to sell the merchandise so 
yes, they have appraisals and and they have reserves, right. but they're realistic. But okay. I, you know, I think I think it's important for us. We need to. I don't know what I'm going to sell until I have it to sell. Right. So for the Madoff case, we were in receipt of hundreds of pieces of paper right. representing stocks that either Bernard or Ruth owned. So do the stocks have a value? Most of them had no value except for the value of the paper that they were printed on. Right. So let's think, who's going to buy this? And what better if you're sitting at an investment firm in New York, why don't I have a framed piece of history? So we kind of tried to tie down on who would want to buy this stuff. And I think Jason or Bob, correct me if I'm wrong, we had a stock certificate that sold and it had no value on paper. But I think the stock certificate sold for over $1,000, just for an 8.5 by 11 wow. piece of paper with his name on it. I think retrospectively, it's easy to look at that bull and see, you know, uh, the awards, a lot of the other things, and see, you know, see the allure because of how the auctions turned out. Um, but, you know, going back to the original view is, you know, beforehand, the nature of the case, you didn't, you, you know, the collectability of something, a, a leather bull with a, with a tail that needs repair is is got to be you know viewed at uh, you know what 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 you have hard data for to back it up and that's that's how we approach our value right. you know people wanted something that he had right. that he stuck his feet up on uh, in his study well here we have a Steinway piano circa 1917 and you mm-hmm. you you valued it at or I guess you opened bidding at seven thousand. Is that retail? If you went in and bought it retail, you'd see it for seven thousand. Or with auctions, you got to think. Um, you know, especially with where you start things is, you know, you, you, you start at a figure and the, the liquidation values or the auction value start at a point where you would have multiple interested parties. So you want to be able to say, I have a 1917 Steinway piano. What are you going to give me? 7,000 now. I, you know, so you're going to get that first bid bang and then the action. Cause once you get people in the psychology of bidding and their hands are going, it becomes, it becomes less about the dollars. It becomes more about, I want that. And, right. So it's it, it, you you know that the more it usually those things kind of seek more of a market value, uh, but where it starts at is 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 the uh, the starting point where you would have multiple cash interested parties. So that's kind of that value. Right. You start lower and you try and put a little worm on the hook and get people to raise their hand. I wonder if they use the worm on the hook analogy in New York. The Steinway sold for forty two thousand. Right. So, right, and I, I remember, I remember the individual that bought it. Uh, I talked to him after the sale, and uh, I said, y- "You know, you're the guy that bought the Steinway." He said, "Yeah." He said, "Well, I've I've been wanting, always wanted a Steinway, and uh, I thought, well, if I want a Steinway, and I have a Steinway that was in Bernie Madoff's house, that's even better." So. Uh, he he paid a good price for the piano, but he was happy. Right. And in in the auction business, if if we can sell you something and make you pay a fair price, and we're happy, the government's happy, and you you walk away happy. Every you know we've what better situation? The buyer's happy, the seller's happy. Right. That's a perfect sale. Right. Uh, now we get to, you know, what I consider to be one of the most interesting items. Um, and you guys decided to put lots together as opposed to selling each individual thing because there were so many, many items. And we, here we have right. lot number 380. 
uh, from the 11-13-2010 sale. There are several 30 pairs of men's socks used. Right. So you're selling used. Is this a first for you to sell used socks? Oh, you know, estate <laughs> no. sales. We've, we've <laughs> no. sold everything. Yeah, right. Okay. You're basically looking at... Bernie has oh, some almost high 180 end. pairs of used socks right. in one lot. I mean, enough to last a lifetime. You also included in that lot 11 pairs of men's designer boxer shorts. Now, those were new, so they're not used underpants. And I'm not sure if you think the value would have gone up. Because it's not like Michael Jordan wore them. But no, uh, no, not at all. You started the bidding at nine hundred and fifty-five dollars. If it went for nine hundred and fifty-six, I would have been shocked and amazed. But it actually went for one thousand seven hundred dollars. Um, they were and the, good, you know. <laughs> they were really good. <laughs> how how would that sound if you're auctioning lot three eighty? And it's uh, 180 pairs of socks, and it's uh, 11 pairs of men's designer boxer shorts, and there was uh, one pair of Prada pantyhose. I mean, this is quite a treasure trove, lot 380. I I guess that's where that lot placement is. If that was lot 380, it was well into the sale. And hopefully, by that point in the sale... The forest fire is burning. And now it doesn't matter what you're selling. Uh, they're, they're buying. Right. They're, so, buying. Yeah, um, they're, 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 they're in a frenzy. They want something. And uh, what better thing than to say, well, I bet you don't know I'm wearing Bernie Madoff's underwear today, do you? <laughs> How would you call it out, Bob? We've sold Bernie Madoff's shoes, so you've had an opportunity to walk in his shoes. Ladies and gentlemen, here's your opportunity to walk in his socks and underwear. What do you want to give? On Madoff, we would walk the, the aisles and say, sure, you don't want to buy? You don't have money in your pocket? You don't want to help? But things are going. These massive lot numbers with napkins, tablecloths, towels. Yeah. Uh, here's one yeah. lot for, you asked, $70. Quarter-inch round glass photo coasters. I mean, this is all the crap that you have in your drawers that you have accumulated over years. But oh, I, th- I think one of the, the most which, important which... distinctions with what we were selling with Madoff and the things that he owned, they were... His assets talked about him. Here we have lot number uh, 292, a wooden duck decoy with, right, that was with black that was and white body, a black head, a maroon head, glass eyes. And you guys thought, you know, maybe uh, 53, 60, uh, 60 bucks, 4,750. That's... The worm. That was the worm again in action. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I think it's, it's important. Not only did we sell his jewelry, we sold cars, we sold some well, boats. Let's, yeah, let's talk about the houses. I mean, what are you getting on these houses? What did you guys get on the Manhattan apartment? Uh, Manhattan apartment went for... Wait, and, me... and it was how many square feet? Give me one second. Okay. Give me one second. Because I feel like I'm on one of those uh, real estate shows. I got it. You I can, got it. Uh, I got it. No, Robin fix, Leach is sitting next to me. Fix it or flip it. <laughs> no. Yeah, you know, the insides of these homes, you know, they're also there wasn't major improvements in the brownstone. It was not a um marble countered uh, it it was very true to the original aged. form. It was very aged. They had high-end appliances, but these were 20-year-old high-end appliances. Okay. In yeah. fact, interestingly enough, Ruth wanted to keep her mink, she wanted to keep her wedding ring, and uh Ruth also wrote you a note. 
I went in one morning and sitting in the kitchen was a note on a little blue sticky for me from Ruth herself. And it said, uh, I definitely want to buy the Nespresso. It's three or four years old. The original cost was about $200. Oh, and the Cuisinart, same age. And I don't remember how much it cost. As soon as you can, please. Signed Ruth Madoff. <laughs> so uh, subsequently, her request was denied and I sold those. Oh, she didn't get not even the no, no need not for even her. an espresso machine. No need for an espresso machine or Cuisinart. She can buy her coffee elsewhere. All right. Well, so we did end up selling the brownstone uh, for a cool eight million dollars at that time. And what was that? How many bedrooms? Uh, that was two, two, three bedrooms, uh, three thirty five hundred square feet. Okay. But prime New York real estate. Yes. Well, that's house, Beautiful views. Yeah. Full time super. Let's go to uh, Montauk. So Montauk was this beautiful, rustic estate overlooking the ocean. Uh, it kind of had the same feeling as the brownstone, older, hadn't been lived in in many years. Very wood paneled. Lots uh-huh. and lots of wood. Um, kind of had a weird, musty, I'm sitting at the ocean, nobody comes to visit me smell. Okay. Um, and that ended up selling for $8.9 million. And how many, how many acres? I think there was about five, four acres on that. Uh, that was a little bit of a larger home, I believe. There was uh, five bedrooms on that one. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, and then there was the house in Palm Beach. Right. That was a newer home, nicer home. The biggest of the homes, I believe that was a seven-bedroom house, ended up going for $6.5 million. They did not go to that one as much as they went to the Montauk and to, the, the obviously, their main residence right. downtown okay. Manhattan. And then they had some boats. Sure. We had a couple boats. They had Bull, Sitting Bull, and Little Bull. I don't think that Madoff in his later life was a fisherman or a boater, per se. I think these were all kind of uh, for the look. Part of the facade. They were the yeah. facade, yeah. I don't, I don't think either one of them were on any of these boats in recent years right. when we ended up seeing What size them. were the boats? Uh, 23 meter was the sport yacht uh, that was flagged out of the Grand Caymans. Not surprising that there were things in the Caymans. Right. Uh, and then there was a 23 foot runabout. There was a 38 foot um, Shelter Island runabout that went for 320,000. And then they did have some cars. I think didn't they, have a, didn't they have a bigger boat? Like that a, was that was the the Leopard, the oh, sport yacht. Okay. And then the they Rybovich, also had a... That was the Rybovich, right? The, no, the Rybovich was different. The Rybovich was the bull. So that was a 1969 custom uh, mahogany wood, all wood boat. Um, a Rybovich is an incredible name in the yachting industry. Uh-huh. Uh, that ended up going for 462000 And where did he keep that? It was in Florida, in, oh, okay. in, in one of the marinas in Florida when right. we took possession of it. Then there was the, the classic why this man owned a trailer. I don't think he was out getting mulch, but he owned a trailer. We sold that. Uh, a 99 Mercedes, a 2004 Volkswagen, a 2001 Mercedes, um, a 2006 Peugeot. And wait, and this is in what year that you sold this? These were sold 2010. 2010. Yep. So he's, yep. uh, he's driving nine-year-old cars? Oh, yeah. Not one new car. Nothing that was conspicuous. No McLarens. No uh, high-end Bentleys. Nothing like that. Wow. So, um, but I think it's interesting, too, that not only did we sell all this tangible personal property, we also intercepted his tax returns. Uh, we intercepted his Social Security payments. Right. Everything. Mm-hmm. Everything. It's not nailed down. Yep. Wow. Gentlemen, are there any other items of note that you guys remember that we should talk about? I must have talked to 75 people and held up 
Bernie's autographed slippers. I, I've never seen so much interest in a pair of slippers in my life. Yeah, those embroidered they slippers, had, so $6,000. Yeah, yeah. 6000 bucks. right. They were black embroidered stripper. I'm sorry. Yeah. They were, they, <laughs> well, that's a different that, story. That, <laughs> um, <laughs> with BLM on the toes. You know, the Madoff jacket, the, the Mets jacket, the 14.5. You wait, know, wait, I, wait, wait, wait. When you say 14.5, you mean 14,000? Mm-hmm. Yeah. For, right. for a Mets jacket. Yeah, for a yes. Mets jacket. A with, shiny blue with one. With his name on it. How good were the Mets that year? That has got to be the biggest surprise. Yeah. If I remember correctly, Jenny, wasn't the, the owner of the Mets that gave it to Bernie kind of a friend of Bernie's but also got scammed? Yes, so the Wilpon, the Wilpon family, Wilpon family also yeah. were affected by the scam. In fact, the Mets were inf- affected by the scam. And not only yeah. that, you know, the Mets are from Queens. Bernard Madoff was from Queens too. So uh, it all right. ties in. All right, it's what we've all been waiting for. Let's get to the money, and let's get to the victims. So all in all, what are we talking about? How much did Madoff actually scam? From uh, his investors, approximately sixty-five billion dollars. I didn't say million; I said billion. About fifteen to twenty billion was actually cash. The other remaining figure was fake. It was all lies. They were all smoke and mirrors. Smoke and mirrors. They were annual statements, yearly statements, filled with eight to twenty percent, if not nine hundred percent, rates of return on their portfolios. They were all fake. So the gain, the gains that everybody thought they got on paper, that's what the bulk of the number is. Correct. That's and, the Ponzi scheme. And, and, yeah. and, I mean, it's unfortunate because people that put in 100000 who on the statements showed a, a gain of 500000 were now buying houses and boats and right. going on lavish right. vacations, retiring, right. quitting their jobs and retiring. And come to find out on December 11, 2008, they had none of that. It was all a lie. And guess what? You have to pay that back. Right. Mm-hmm. Our most recent announcement from the U.S. Attorney's Office in, Southern, in the Southern District of New York was on September of 2021, and they dispersed approximately $568 million back to the victims. That was the seventh distribution of funds. To date, I believe it's at $3.7 billion to up to 40,000 victims. So the U.S. government has given the victims almost $4 billion. Correct. And this is still happening. This is the government's piece of it. There's also another piece of it where the trustee... uh, A significant piece was recovered and seized by the the court-appointed trustee, Irving Picard, uh uh, through numerous outlets to include banking institutions that knowingly or or unknowingly, assisted in the crime. Right. There were beneficiaries such as Mr. Pickauer, who settled with to $7 billion uh, of assets returned back to the government. And he was, he was a Madoff investor. Right. During the sentencing in June of 2009, Judge Denny Chin said that a substantial sentence, which was 150 years that he imposed, would not give back to the victims' retirement funds or the monies they saved to send their children or grandchildren to college. Mm -hmm. It would not give back their financial security or the freedom from financial worry. That 150-year sentence does not give back the 15 to $20 billion that Mr. Madoff stole from these folks. This man's actions decimated more than just these 40,000 people. Everybody that touched it, his own family has been destroyed. 
You know, his son's committed suicide. You know, his brother's lost all of his belongings. It's just destruction. You destroyed so many lives. Right. Financially, emotionally, and not just this generation, but for many generations to come. To come. Many to right. come. Yeah, you ruined a lot of lives. This is a phenomenal program that I didn't know anything about that really seeks justice for the victims in a way that they usually don't get it. They are usually SOL. I'm really so pleased that uh, all this money has been returned to the victims. Chris, the use of asset forfeiture disrupts and dismantles illegal enterprises. Right. It deprives criminals of the proceeds of legal activity, deters crime. And it restores property back to the victims. Yep. It's, it's the best law enforcement success story out there, in yeah. my opinion, bar none. So it's important to know about this program and the Madoff case in specifics that although 31,000 victims have already received or are about to receive victims payments, there may still be victims yet to be identified. If you are a victim or a potential victim, you can go to the website www.madoffvictimfund.com to see the eligibility criteria, process updates, and any frequently asked questions. And for those that were victims or are victims of this crime, you can seek help by going to the Department of Justice Victims and Witness Program for assistance. Jenny Crane, Roland Yobaldo, Bob Sheehan, Jason Zibniewski, Thanks very much for coming in. This is a wildly successful program, and I am all too happy to highlight it. Thank you for having us. Well, thanks for having us. Also, please help us get the word out. We're just starting, and we want to keep this going a long time. Follow the podcast, subscribe. If you feel like it, leave a five-star rating and write a glowing review. It's a lot to ask, but it really helps. Much appreciated. And finally, our good friends in the Office of General Counsel of the Marshal Service would like you to know Chasing Evil is produced with the cooperation of the U.S. Marshal Service and contains interviews with current and retired employees as well as other persons. Opinions, positions, and views expressed by any of them may not reflect the official views, positions, or policies of the U.S. Marshal Service. Stay safe, everyone. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. 